even though I know it made Mark a little nervous for me to be here last Sunday, uh, I was delighted to be here. And the 500 plus miles we rode on Saturday to make sure we got here was well worth it. Uh, did an amazing, amazing job, and I loved the way you brought together the finger of God writing the law on tablets of stone at Sinai and the finger of Jesus writing the message of grace and forgiveness in the dust of the temple floor. And I believe you're right. It was the same finger of God writing both places. He spelled out the nature of sin on Sinai and made sure we understood that forgiveness of sin is available when the woman caught in adultery was brought before him. You know, we sometimes think of the God of the Old Testament as a God of law and the God of the New Testament as a God of grace, but nothing could be further from the truth. It's the same God in both Testaments. And through a, a careful reading of the text, His grace can be seen at work throughout the entire Old Testament. That grace was supremely demonstrated, however, when God took on flesh in the person of Jesus and died for us. And as a writer of Hebrews, declared, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. The writer also made clear that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. It's through Jesus that we come to understand the nature of our Heavenly Father. Jesus pictures God for us. And the writer of Hebrews also tells us that it is Jesus who upholds all things by the word of his power. The power of God we see in action in Matthew 8 and 9. In chapter 8, we saw that Jesus has power over disease as witnessed in the healing of a leper, the centurion's servant, and Peter's mother-in-law, and power over the elements, both natural and supernatural, as seen in calming the storm at sea and freeing the gathering demoniacs of the spiritual storms that raged within them. Well, today we look at Jesus' power over sin, as his power to forgive sin is verified in an undeniable way, and then his willingness to enter into relationship with sinful people is made abundantly clear. We move into the ninth chapter of Matthew this morning. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, they were bringing to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. 
And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Rise, take up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the multitudes saw this, they were filled with awe and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Now, as we've mentioned before, Matthew is arranging his material topically, not chronologically. But to link together Jesus' demonstration of power over evil by casting a legion of demons out of two men who lived among the tombs on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee, and this demonstration of Jesus' power over sin, he concludes the last account by telling of Jesus getting into a boat and crossing back over the Sea of Galilee to his own city, Capernaum, located on the northwest shore of the sea. He then relates the account of something that actually happened in Capernaum before the events that took place in Gadara. In fact, it happened even before Jesus had delivered the Sermon on the Mount. But Matthew tells of it now, because this is where it fits into his topical arrangement of the material. Now, Mark tells us that when Jesus had come back to Capernaum from a tour through Galilee, where he was preaching and casting out demons, and during which time he healed the leper, that when he got home, people packed the house where he was staying, most likely Peter's home. Luke tells us that included in the crowd were Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and even Jerusalem to hear what he had to say. And it was to this house that the paralytic was brought. Now, both Mark and Luke tell us the place was so packed that the four men who were carrying the paralytic on his pallet weren't able to get in the door. The house, however, apparently had stairs that led up to the roof. And not to be detoured, they carried the man up to the top of the house and proceeded to tear through the roof. They then lowered the man and his bed through a hole they had made directly in front of Jesus. And Jesus, seeing their faith and you know, the faith of the four friends who lowered him into his presence and the faith of the man, said, Take courage, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, obviously, that would have been an appropriate thing for Jesus to say to anyone. You know, who wouldn't have sins that needed to be forgiven? But it was especially appropriate on this occasion because of the commonly held belief that sins had to be forgiven before anyone could be made well. A rabbi, Alexander, taught, The sick arises not from his sickness until his sins are forgiven. And Rabbi Chaya ben Abba said, No sick person is cured from sickness until all his sins are forgiven him. So Jesus forgave the man's sins 
before he did anything else. That's not, however, what the scribes had in mind when they said a man's sins had to be first forgiven. Now, they meant that God would have to forgive a man's sins before he could be made well. For Jesus to say, my son, your sins are forgiven, was blasphemy. Unless, of course, he was God. Obviously, they didn't believe that. And so the scribes began thinking to themselves, this man blasphemes. But Jesus knew their thoughts. He said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? He then asked a question that set them up for what was about to take place. He asked, which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Which is easier? Well, actually, you can say either of them quite easily. You know, your sins are forgiven. Rise and walk. But then again, who can really say either? Other than God. You know, I don't have the authority to say your sins are forgiven. Nor can I realistically say to a paralytic, rise and walk. Both are beyond the power of men. If a man were to say one, however, with the hopes of getting away with it, it would no doubt be easier to say your sins are forgiven. For how would that statement be verified? There'd be no way, no way for you to know for sure whether or not that person saying your sins are forgiven, had in fact forgiven someone's sins. But if you were to say to a paralytic, rise and walk, your authority to say such would be immediately confirmed or denied. Now, as we've noted, Jesus had already demonstrated power over sickness and disease. At his command, a leper had been made clean, and the centurion's paralyzed servant had been healed. What he now sought to demonstrate was his authority to forgive sin. So he linked the forgiveness of sin with a physical healing. And he forgave the man before he healed him, so the visible miracle would confirm the invisible one. Now, if he had healed the man before saying your sins are forgiven, it would have still been an unprovable assertion. But by stating it first and then linking it to an observable miracle, he could effectively prove that the Son of Man had authority on earth to forgive sins by saying to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and go home. When the man got up and went home, the multitude was filled with awe. They were filled with fear. And who wouldn't be afraid of someone with the power to forgive or retain sin? <laughs> Only those who had been forgiven, who had been accepted who had been called into a relationship with him. And Matthew moves next to use himself as an example 
of just such a person. Verses 9 through 13. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And it happened that as he was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax gatherers and sinners? When he heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. By this time, Jesus had already called Peter, Andrew, James, and John to be his disciples. It's also probable that Philip and Nathaniel, or Bartholomew, were also considered his disciples. To their number, he now adds Matthew, or Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Matthew was a tax collector, a publican, one who dealt with public funds. He was probably a customs collector, sitting in his booth by the port, which would also be near the border between territories of Philip and Herod Antipas. Now, Matthew was Jewish but not loved by the Jews, and that's an understatement. You know, Jews who were employed by the Romans or even indirectly by local authorities appointed by the Romans were despised. Not only were they viewed as traitors to their people, they were also considered thieves because their position gave them the authority to extort funds for personal use. In fact, they derived their income by collecting more than was required by the authorities. So Matthew was most certainly a wealthy Jewish outcast, one who would have been scorned by the rabbis and completely cut off from fellowship in the synagogue. But when Jesus walked by and said, follow me, he rose and followed him. Now Luke adds, that he left everything and followed Jesus. Apparently, Matthew was too modest to mention that of himself. But he walked away from everything to follow Jesus. He left the money box sitting there. And he walked away from a cushy government job. And we know how hard that would be. Matthew then goes on to make it clear That Jesus not only forgives sin, he actually calls sinners into relationship with himself. He invited Matthew to follow after him. And he didn't close the door on any who wanted fellowship with him. After his decision to follow Jesus, Matthew spread the word among his friends. He invited them to meet this rabbi who had not only accepted him, but had called him to be a disciple. And Matthew's friends, of course, were all like him. They were tax gatherers and sinners. Now, we acknowledge that everyone is a sinner. But the rabbis used that term to identify those 
who are not allowed to act as judges or witnesses because of their moral unreliability. The Talmud enumerates them as dice players, pigeon racers, not falconers, <laughs> pigeon racers, usurers, dealers in produce from the sabbatical year, robbers and other violent criminals, herdsmen, custom officials, and tax gatherers. These were officially known as sinners. And it was such identifiable sinners who had gathered in Matthew's home to meet and eat with Jesus and his disciples. The Pharisees were shocked that Jesus was eating with such. And they circled the table and started talking to Jesus' disciples. Why is your teacher eating with tax gatherers and sinners, they asked. Now, they didn't ask Jesus. They asked his disciples, apparently trying to discredit him in, in their eyes more than anything else. But Jesus overheard them and said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. He then told them to go and learn what I desire compassion and not sacrifice meant. He was quoting from the book of Hosea and was challenging the experts in biblical interpretation to go back and read the Bible again. It's just really good advice for a lot of biblical interpreters. Go and learn was a standard phrase that rabbis used to challenge their students to study the word. I like that. Go and learn. You might start using that phrase. Jesus then said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, he's not suggesting that there are some who are so righteous that they don't need to be saved from the consequences of their sins. He's merely acknowledging that there are some who are so self-righteous that they don't think they need it. The Pharisees fell into that category. Jesus came instead to call any who would acknowledge their need for forgiveness, who were willing to admit they were sinners in need of a Savior. And the same is true today. Only those who are willing to admit they're sinners can be forgiven of their sin. That's not popular concept today. We like to rename every sin into some other aberration that's acceptable socially. We need to call sin, sin. We need to acknowledge that our behavior has alienated us from our Creator. That we have failed to live up to the demands of the law. Every one of us. We are all sinners in the eye of God. And unless we're willing to do that, we can never be forgiven. You know, Jesus has power over sin. He demonstrated it here. Perfectly clear. He tied together, I say to you, your sins are forgiven, and take up your bed and walk. Boom. One proved the other. No doubt about it. Jesus can save sinners. 
He has the power to forgive sin. But Jesus is powerless to forgive your sin unless you're willing to admit you have it. It's not blanket forgiveness. It's individual forgiveness. Dependent upon the faith of the one reaching out and asking for that forgiveness. You can't just sit back and say, well, Jesus died for everybody, so I'm home free. No, it doesn't work that way. You have to acknowledge your sin before the sin can be forgiven. So I ask you, have you acknowledged that fact publicly? If you haven't, and most of us have, but if you haven't, I invite you to do so today. I invite you to publicly acknowledge your need of a Savior by coming to accept Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. By coming to the only one who has the authority on earth to forgive sins. The one who has proven power over sin. Power to wash you clean in the blood he shed to pay for your sin. We invite you.